This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Mikhail Carter. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jasmine Nicole Cobb about her new book, New Growth, The Art and Texture of Black Hair. Her book is being published with Duke University Press and is scheduled to be released in December 2022, so very soon. Thank you for being on the channel, Dr. Cobb. Thank you for having me. So I guess we'll just go ahead and get started. Um, Could you talk about the title of your book and how did you come about choosing it? Yeah, so New Growth was one of those titles that I started using it before I was really clear about what I was up to. It just felt right for me thinking about questions of hair and change over time and texture. I thought about new growth, that feeling, the dividing line a person feels on on their own hair if they move from straightening to not straightening their hair. And I think over time, it became a kind of guiding principle for what I was writing to think about touch and feeling and texture Um, but also all of the cultural and historical dynamics that surround how people choose to wear their hair. For sure. And can you talk about what was your motivation behind writing the book? So when I started researching hair, I was uh, actually at work on my first book, Picture Freedom, and I was just surrounded by a really lush hair culture in the city of Philadelphia, uh, going to hair shows and hair competitions, experimenting with different hairstyles, going to braiding salons. Uh, I also stopped using chemical straighteners on my own hair. So it was just sort of the culture I was in and fascinated by. And eventually I saw a connection between what I was working on, questions about visual representations of freedom in the 19th century and this sort of ongoing conversation about what it looks like and feels like to be free in the contemporary Thank you. And so um, your chapter titles are also very unique. And so could you talk about how did you go about naming your chapters? Yeah, so I started with um, different sort of writing exercises to help me along. You know, I would play with um, sentences to try to tell the story through the table of contents and then whittle that down to something more specific. And as I was wrapping up, I thought about what was the focus of each chapter. Um, So chapter one, archive, really thinks about hair as an archive, a collection of uh, feelings and sentiments. Uh, Chapter two, texture, thinking about really pushing back against ideas about Black hair as coarse. The chapter explores really racial capitalism as the coarseness that we feel and then associate with the Black body. 
um, chapter three, touch explores um, representations of touch, which seemed like such central features of video and camera images from the 1990s that were exploring here that those cultural producers were really talking about how we touch one another, how we learn new, new forms of touch. And then finally, chapter four, Surface, looks at four Black women artists who are making works about hair, and they're so different. They're working in different mediums, but they share this fixation with hair. And what I think they're up to uh, is using the art surface, whether it's a photograph or a collage or a painting, um, to really think about how the racialized surface comes to be, you know, that hair is part of a making of an idea of Blackness as it lives on the surface. And so, yeah. Wonderful. And so um, in New Growth, you explore issues of touch, texture, um, and feeling as they relate to the idea and the image of natural hair. Um, so why did you decide to focus on natural hair? And also, how are you defining natural hair in your book? Yeah, so there are many great books on black hair, as you know, Naliwe Rook's work, Tanisha Ford's work, Tiffany Gill's work. And so I saw myself as joining a conversation about black hair that's been going on for a long time. Uh, I think most often when black hair is discussed, whether in scholarly books or in popular culture, there's almost instantly a question of, well, you know, is straightening okay? Is straightening bad politics? Is it self-hate? Is it self-loathing? And while I think those questions can be important, I really wanted to enter the conversation and not deal with those things um, to sort of not have other questions forestalled by this issue of, you know, does the person who straightens hate themselves? What, what else can we know about hair and what else can we think about the meaning of black hair over time? And so for me, going straight to the question of natural hair brought me straight to questions of feeling and touch and, you know, how black hair has been meaningful to everyone, not just black people. Uh, and that meaning far supersedes the question of self-hate and straightening. And, and natural was the way to get at that directly. Thank you. Um, could you speak about the types of sources that you use? Yeah, so there are some really, uh, as the phrase goes, good and terrible things that I, I deal with in the text. So the, the good, uh, starting at the end, the, the art I really love. Um, I'm looking at works by Lorna Simpson, who's been including hair in her work since the 90s, uh, Allison Saar, uh, who's doing sculpture and assemblage work, uh, Sonia Clark, who's doing craft around hair, as well as Ellen Gallagher. Uh, I talk about 90s independent film. Whenever I tell people that, you know, 
Black hair was the subject of documentary. People often go to Chris Rock's good hair. And in the book, I reveal that there's a good 10 to 15 years of documentary filmmaking by Black women filmmakers in particular that Rock draws on and is inspired by. So I explore some of that. Uh, I look at Johnson Publishing Company material, so Ebony Magazine, Jet Magazine, um, Soul Train, these sort of darlings of Black popular culture and representations that are really beloved for how they treat um, African Americans and cultures of beauty. Uh, But there's also a number of... um, harder to sit with materials, um, depictions uh, from the news and photojournalism. Uh, For example, the way Philadelphia photojournalists represented MOVE members, uh, independent living community that was bombed in Philadelphia in the 1980s. Uh, I look at a really important but bizarre scrapbook that collects samples of hair from the 19th century, which includes samples from white men, presidents like George Washington, but also samples taken from um, Black people held in bondage and sort of the kind of collecting that we know to attribute to medical science and experimentation in the 19th century. And then lastly, I look at a number of uh, literary sources, Frederick Douglass's life writing, Harriet Jacobs, Harriet Tubman, life writing and photography uh, from the early 19th century. Thanks. So you have so many diverse um, sources that we'll, that we'll be able to like engage in in the book. Um, could you talk about how Black hair act as both a cultural practice, but then also as visual material? So when I think of Black hair as a cultural practice, I think about the things that people do, specifically Black people, things that we do to our hair um, for, for the purpose of creating style. So practices of braiding and styling, um, but also habits that are just sort of culturally familiar, like wash day or, um, you know, as represented in the documentaries, using the hot comb, things that are um, done over time across different geographic locations that um, help bring Black people together in community. That includes locking hair um, as a cultural practice. And then as a visual symbol, I think about black hair, both uh, the kind of iconic pictures that represent black hair, again, like from an Ebony magazine, for example, but also the way in which black hair has operated similar to the flesh as this way of symbolizing black racial identity, even in absence of a body, right? So when we see samples of hair, uh, for dyeing example, for example, you know, dye samples, or if we see pictures of hair in a book or a magazine, even when we don't see the body, we understand that certain textures and coils and curls lumped together represent hair taken from a person of African descent, 
And in that way, hair is a symbol, a stand-in for the Black person as well. Thank you so much. Um, your, well, the introduction that I was able to read, um, you argue for reading Blackness as a haptic inheritance conveyed through ways of creating the surface. Um, could you elaborate on this and articulate what is driving your argument? Yeah, so one of the things, you know, I thought about, I think there are different issues I tackle, even though I don't um, name them explicitly. But a, a, a thing I thought about in writing the book, particularly when I talk about the state violence faced by uh, members of MOVE, uh, members of Mau Mau in Kenya, um, Rastafarians in Jamaica. I thought about the ways in which, you know, locked hair has become a culturally appropriated thing. It's not uncommon to see a person who's not of African descent wearing locked hair. But what is uncommon is to see a person of African descent who's not of African descent wearing locked hair and facing state violence, right? That there are certain ways in which um, the visual associations with Blackness, like locked hair or cornrows, everyone can wear them and put them on, but not everybody is handled in the same way by the state and not in interpersonal relationships. So um, hair is a way into thinking about Blackness as a haptic inheritance, is a way to think about what are the aspects of touch and feeling that construct the Black body, that construct what it means to be Black. For example, the feeling of having one's hair braided or pressed with a hot comb, but then also how those practices construct what it means to be Black by being handled in certain ways, such as state violence as an offshoot or perpetuation of slavery. Um, The kind of yanking and pulling that we see around Black hair in police encounters today, or um, a student athlete who has his locks forcibly cut off at a wrestling match in New Jersey. Um, Those things are repetitious practices taken from slavery when wearing long hair was um, illegal for people of African descent because short hair symbolized their slave status. Or, you know, when forcibly shaving a woman's hair was an entry into sexual violence under slavery, that these practices of doing things to the Black body, whether by others or practices of care and grooming shared between one Black person to another, help to construct the experience of Blackness not just in the visual, but in practices of touch and feeling. Wow, that's really powerful. Um, So you also speak about racial capitalism in your work. Could you talk about um, how has racial capitalism helped to shape conceptions of Blackness in relation to Black hair? Yeah, this was something that was, I thought, important to tackle and tricky to tackle. 
um, because I couldn't really deal with racial capitalism without also dealing with Black capitalism, which was so essential to uh, those iconic images of the Afro in the 60s, um, Soul Train and Afro Sheen, these kinds of Black institutions that we associate with the spectacular and think of as largely positive um, are things that I argue, along with others like Manning Maribel, emanate from this same complicated place, which is racial capitalism as something that acts on the Black body. Uh, And while we might celebrate Black entrepreneurs, Black capitalism can't eradicate the ravages of capitalism. And so I try to deal with racial capitalism uh, first as it's relevant to thinking about the experience of someone like Frederick Douglass, who talks a lot about um, his hair and his life writing. He tells us about um, his hair as a kind of record of the fighting he endures just before he escapes slavery. But then he also tells us about sort of using his hair as an abolitionist to mark himself as a racial commodity on the anti-slavery circuit. And it really sort of starts the story of new growth as, you know, how Black hair is meaningful to multiple constituencies. Moving into the 20th century, the examples are sort of more familiar um, in terms of the violence we associate with racial capitalism, right? So move members having their hair pulled and grabbed, um, locks ripped out of people's head as part of the experience of police brutality. Um, In this way in which racial capitalism acts on the Black body and makes meaning of Blackness as a surface, um, I work to show hair as a part of that, that that it is the flesh, right? But uh, even in the example of hair, which isn't a sellable commodity like the body writ large, um, Black hair has an affective use value. It's a thing that whites can use to feel power and express violence in the context of slavery. Uh, And it is a a thing used to control Black people after slavery. So currently you have your introduction to your book um, online and it was an amazing read. And so I am Um, very looking forward to reading your entire book next month. Um, And I'm sure the audience is too. Um, And so could you answer this? So what do you hope readers will gain after reading New Growth? Mm, That's a good question. I hope New Growth helps us all think about what are the opportunities presented presented to us through textured hair, right? Um, You know, I started with this issue of, you know, if straightening is about self-hate and not straightening is, you know, sort sort of an embrace of Blackness. But I think after we get 
past the questions of what hair should look like, you know, if if you're well-groomed, if it's styled properly. There's still this question of how we touch one another. Um, even something quite simple as um, detangling, right? And how that can be a harsh and painful experience, right? So I, I hope that new growth is part of rethinking all the opportunities we have for um, love and care and regard of the Black body and how those experiences can reshape what we think about Blackness. And they are everyday opportunities. They are opportunities that have to wait on the passage of the Crown Act, for example, right? The Crown Act is important and we need the Crown Act, but we also need everyday forms of touch and kindness uh, and preciousness around Blackness and the Black body that aren't predicated on the law or, you know, upward mobility and participation in market economies, but just about the being of the Black body. That's amazing. And so for my final question, what are you working on next? What am I working on? <laughs> so I have been in pursuit of Harriet Tubman. I talk about her a little bit in New Growth. Um, Harriet talks about her own hair in slavery and how she has this violent encounter and her hair in her telling actually saves her life. And you know, I think it's a powerful story, but it for me, it links to so much other stuff we don't know about Harriet, what she thought and felt about her appearance, what it meant to other people. So my third book, The Pictorial Life of Harriet Tubman, looks at Tubman's life through pictures, um, whether it's a recent photograph discovered by about her a few years ago, um, art by Bisa Butler, the possibility of her ending up on the $20 bill, and great canonic works of art that have taken Tubman as a muse, but you know we still have so much we don't know about what her likeness meant in her lifetime and after. So yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cobb, for being on the New Books Network channel. And I'm looking forward to your upcoming book. And then also um, looking forward to your, um, your, the work that you're working on. So hopefully we can have you on again in the future. That'd be wonderful. Thanks again. Great talking to you.